as we now talk about building a healthy culture, okay? And here's the, how the dots connect. As a leader, you unavoidably will shape and create a culture. Your church, the culture, the environment, <clears throat> the context of your staff, your team, your culture is a mirror image, will become a mirror image of your spiritual, emotional, relational health. Your walk with Christ, the context of your home, your heart, your, your uh, relational health, uh, your mental health, your, you call it psychological health, whatever you want to call it, your, the quality of your spirit will, will bleed into uh, your church. And if you don't like what you're seeing in your church, that's a reflection of who you are. Now, I, I get it. It's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Some of you are new at your church, and it's a culture you're reshaping. So that's what we want to talk about today. Culture is, is, is everything, and we'll unpack that statement in a few minutes. Derek, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together. Lord, as we re-engage this morning, I pray and ask to help our minds, our hearts to be open and focused. God, would we be able to get information that wouldn't just be good ideas, but Lord, would truly change our heart, uh, Lord, that we would be gospel-centered and look through a lens that you would want us to look through, that Lord, we would love people and lead more genuinely. God, I pray that uh, friendships would be deepened and maybe answers uh, would be found and that uh, encouragement uh, would be found as well. Lord, uh, bless those that will be speaking today. Give us courage to, to change and to be surrendered to you. And Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, be, <clears throat> excuse me, my, in the morning, my, I'm just, I spend a lot of time clearing my throat in the morning, so you bear with me. Be who you are. Our prayer uh, and our passion is that you would come out of the woods <clears throat> of having to be who everybody else tells you, you you have to be. And I'm not talking about uh, doctrine or theology, okay? Uh, we're not talking about playing <clears throat> or flirting or, or, or uh, experimenting with theology. Uh, that we ought to... Uh, I said one day to Scott in the car, I said, you have... You don't have very many stakes in the ground, but the ones you have are driven very deeply. And that was a shaping moment for me. And that's in many ways how these guys have helped me is what hills are worth dying on, dying for, and what hills aren't even worth talking about. You know, and I think when we had a moral majority and, and, and kind of a Christian nation, we had the luxury of disunity. It was like we had the luxury to nitpick and, 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 and divide and, and factionalize, to use Kurt's word. And I think all of us share this burden that our nation and our world is in such a desperate condition and need for the gospel. It's like, who has time to talk about petty stuff um, that in the end doesn't matter, Okay. You don't like those songs? Use your own songs. Whatever. Write your own. Who cares? It's like, you love the gospel? Let's go. I'm, I am, in my life, so ready to cooperate with anybody that loves the same gospel I love. And I think part of that's just being in New England. You know, it's not the Bible belt up here. And we're not, it's not a lot of competition between churches because there's not a lot of churches. Um, and so you just meet a Christian. It's like, and I mean a, a biblical Christian, not a Catholic Christian or something. You meet a Christian, you just want to hug them and go, yes, there's other Christians in New England. Let's do this, you know? And um, so anyway, that's, that's a bit of a rabbit trail. 
But be who you are should, should give you a biblical liberty and identity, a secure identity, that you're not living in the fear of man. I do really, we joke about it, but I do fear and feel for some of you that are afraid of who's going to find out that you're here. There is such liberty in your life when you stop being afraid of that kind of stuff. That is simply the fear of man. And it is a paralysis. It's a psychoparalysis. It, it is, it's, it's extremely unhealthy. It is the result of cult-like thinking that has been imposed on you. It takes, a, it takes the gospel to untangle it and to, and to set you free from it. Um, and to find a culture and a, and a culture of, of fellow laborers that are not conditionally loving you that way. So in other words, you go to that meeting or you go to that conference or you, go, or you hang out with those people and I can't hang out with you. That's psycho-segregation. It's not separation. It's isolation. It's, it's, it's a weird kind of, of uh, insecure... I don't have an identity in Christ, so I'm going to find identity in my externals, my appearance, and my standards, and my, and my this or that. And it really is oppressive. And when you come out of it, and, and you can be free to be who the gospel says you are and lead your church, can I just throw this in here? You can't lead your church to follow Jesus if your mind is stuck in the pressures imposed on you by other men. Uh, right after I got to Connecticut, um, a man that pastored for many years in Connecticut was coming through, and he called and said, "Can I take you to lunch?" And I, I didn't, I didn't know a soul. I didn't know this man. I said, "Sure." I didn't have any money to buy lunch. I was happy someone was going to treat me to lunch. Okay, and um, just lonely. And I, and I kind of suspected this was an, a man probably now probably twenty years older than me. And I kind of just expected that standard, you know, stay biblical talk, you know. And so I went, and we, we, we fellowshiped. We shared each other's testimonies. And at the end of the conversation, he said, let me give you some advice. Sure, you know. And he said, this is advice that Lester Roloff gave to me. And now, you know, the, I like, okay, here it comes, you know, <laughs> here it comes. <laughs> he's going to tell me, you know, don't preach in jeans or don't do, you know, he's going to, and I, so I kind of had, okay, I'm going to receive it graciously, but here it comes. He said something I did not expect him to say. He said, don't ever let other men hold you hostage. The opinions of other men hold your ministry hostage. And I, I looked at him like... Wait, come again? I said, Lester Roloff said this to you? <laughs> he said, yeah, like 30 years ago when he was much younger, 40 or whatever, he said, um, he, he, I, said Are you, I said, I think I know what you mean, but help me unpack that a little bit. Um, do you mean men in the church or men outside of the church? He said, well, technically I mean both, but primarily men outside of your church. Uh, I said, okay, explain what you're talking about. He said, Carrie, I don't know you very well. I just, I just get the feeling you're going to do things differently than most people in New England do them. I said, okay. I didn't know I was going to do that, but okay. Because uh, I don't know who, who's in New England or what they do. And he said, um, he said, just do what Jesus leads you to do. Follow the Lord. And he said, it's going to cost you. 
It's going to cost you friends. It's going to cost you associates. People are going to reject you. They're going to slander you. They're going to write articles about you. It's okay. So if you're following Jesus, it's okay. Um, but he said, 10 years from now, God will bless it, and they'll be, uh, it'll turn around, you know. And that, that was really liberating advice. I mean, he was basically saying, don't live in the fear of man. And what he was kind of telling me is you can't effectively lead Emmanuel if you are handing the reins of, of the leadership of the church over to men who aren't leading Emmanuel, okay? And their opinions and their preferences and their traditions and their methods and their, uh, you know, their, their perspectives. It's not that you don't value those mentors and, and love those relationships. You don't have to scorn them. You just don't have to be their hostage. So coming into culture, how does be who you are connect to build a healthy culture, okay? Well, who you are, we just sang it, is who Jesus says you are. The gospel defines you. Not, not, not uh, denominational descriptors. The men uh, in the pulpit committee said, What's the f- what are changes you would make if you came to Emmanuel? They just kind of wanted to know. Well, the sign was this ugly red brick sign, and the letters were falling off, and it said Emmanuel Baptist Church, and then there were big black letters, independent, fundamental. And I said, well, if you want to know all, all honesty, and I, I, honestly, in this moment, I'm like, There's nev- they're never going to want me to pastor this church, so I have nothing to lose. I said, uh, first thing I would do is go out there and take the words independent, fundamental off the sign. Because that those mean, those words mean something totally different to the lost world and to our secular culture than they would mean to us, and even to us they mean so many radically different things. You know, and so I, I said, even if you don't call me to be the pastor, if you give me a hammer and permission, I'll go down there and take it off tonight. <laughs> and I meant it. I meant it. Um, when we built the website, I said, I, I put on the website, we're a, we're a non-denominational Bible-believing church. Non-denominational Baptist, I think is what I called it, which just sounds like an oxymoron to people. Non-denominational Baptist, what is that? I said, well, non-denominational means we don't report to denomination. Nobody controls us. We're independent. And, and Baptist is a doctrinal word to me, so that, that, that has to do with what we actually believe. And... Um, and, and, and I had a man that I don't know, and I, I, I didn't know at the time, and I know him, and he's a good man, and he meant well, but he called me just out of the blue. Uh, and he said, why'd you put that on your website? I said, because I'm trying to reach people, and I want them to know that we're non-denominational Baptists. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, but why? And I, I said, why do you care? Like, you don't go to my church. You don't live here. You, like, you know, why do you even care? Um, and it was a group think thing, you know, and I said, look, with all due respect, those words to most people mean arrogant, sexually deviant, um, uh, cultic. They, those words mean things to different people that, that are not biblical or doctrinal. I just don't, I don't care to be identified that way. I'm trying to reach lost people. And, uh, if they just Google those words, it's not good, you know? And, and I get it, it's, it's a diverse world, but I've got so many great Christian friends, godly friends who love the gospel in, in the SBC world and in the Bible church world and in the pres- conservative Presbyterian world and in the conservative evangelical world. And I'm just like, well, how am I going to define myself? Okay, I'll just be a Bible-believing Christian. I'm good with that. You know, that's what I'll die for, you know. Um, and... <clears throat> 
So I said to the man, though, on the phone, I said, look, I love you. I respect you. I'll be your friend if you want to be my friend. But I, I don't need to be accepted by you or your group. I, I came here at the call of Christ to lead Emmanuel to health, if God would do that. And I don't know if he will yet, but I just, I'm not trying to make you happy. I'm trying to please the Lord. And if, if it takes that to make you happy, I apologize. I'm just not going to be able to make you happy, but it's okay. And one of my big passions for you guys is not that you join our group or somebody else's group. We don't have a group. I mean, I'm fine to be groupless, okay? Um, my passion for you is to, to be able to say to you, look, there's life and health if you just be you, who the gospel says you are, okay? Um, but the gospel shapes a culture. This is what, when I say culture is everything, well, you say, well, the Bible's everything. Jesus is everything. The doctrine's everything. Yeah, Exactly. The gospel creates its own culture. Just, just look at who Peter was before Jesus resurrected, before Jesus had fish on the grill at the Sea of Galilee and reclaimed Peter. Look at who he was and look at who he became not, not through any manufacturing work of himself. Look at who he became uh, by Acts chapter 4 and 5, or really 2 or 3, where he, somebody has to speak. <laughs> okay, I guess I will, you know. Um, and 4 and 5, when they're in prison and we have to obey God, you know. Look at how the transformation unfolded, just like you said yesterday, masterful, Peter and John chippy with one another prior to the resurrection. The gospel totally reshaped them and made them able to, even though they were very different, able to collaborate and cooperate together and work together. Uh, what, what I've come to understand in the last uh, seven, eight years of my life is that the first um, 35 years of my Christian journey, I wasn't exposed very often to gospel-rich cultural environments. And you'll understand what I'm talking about uh, by the time I'm done. The, the, the culture I'm, I'm talking about is something the gospel does organically, okay? If, if we will get out of the way of the gospel and let Jesus and the Spirit of God do what he does, this culture will materialize in your heart, in your identity, in your spirit, and then and then it will come out in your Bible teaching and preaching. It will come out in your leadership style. It will come out in your joy and in the environments that you cultivate in your church. And guess what happens in healthy environments? Growth. Guess what happens when you cultivate a healthy culture? I'm not talking about, don't translate the word growth to simply numbers. That, that's a mistake. When I say growth, I'm talking about spirit growth, disciple making disciple multiplication, uh, Christians that are, that are deepening and growing in love with Jesus and worshiping him and devoted to him, and new believers that they're bringing along. I mean, culture of health is new believers are being birthed and new disciples are being made and shaped and, and all growing at different rates and different paces, but the work of God organically uh, not, not being manufactured, not, not being forced, not you uh, producing it, you, you are cultivating it, okay? 
Um, you know, the biblical examples of Christian journey are in so many, con- so many scriptures organic. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Uh, the seed and the sower. Um, the, the, the shepherd and the sheep, the under-shepherd, cultivating the heart. I say often to our church family, we want Emmanuel to be green pasture and still water where God's sheep can feed. Um, I heard a man say one time, I've heard this actually several times, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Therefore, two, yeah, you're beating me to it. Two-thirds of your preaching should be negative. That's the most idiotic statement I've ever heard. Okay. Um, I don't even know to where to begin to unpack the stupidity of that. Okay. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. First of all, God's rebukes are in love. And that's, that doesn't even make them negative. Okay. God, God's laws are loving. God's laws are not grievous. The assumption is that God is an oppressor and that we're going to be living under his laws out of obligation and duty uh, because, because it's, it's our obligation because after all, he saved us. He's a jerk, but he saved us. So we owe him. That is such a bad portrait of who God is, okay? His laws are loving. His, his rebukes are gracious. His chastening is to cultivate the peaceable fruit of righteousness. His chastening is not punishment. He punished Jesus. His, his work in our lives is always for our best and always for our flourishing and always for the increase of our joy. His heart is towards us. So reprove, that's correction, and, and rebuke is that confrontational, um, uh, um, cor- correctional kind of, and, and uh, exhort, exhortation is encouraging. But listen, if you're preaching the word of God, all three of those things are happening simultaneously all across the room, period. So to stand up and say, okay, two-thirds, point one is going to be negative, point two is going to be negative, point two is going to be positive, just so I can stay within the framework. That's nutty. That is nutty. Gospel means, so what kind of news? Okay. <laughs> so here's my point. Even the negative news of the word of God is an arrow pointing to the greater good news, okay? Uh, and and, and the, the, the culture, here's the deal. If you think that your preaching should be two-thirds negative and one-third positive, first of all, you have a bad hermeneutic, but secondly, you're going to create a culture that is toxic. It is, it is uh, literally sucking life out of Christian hearts. Your church culture will be oppressive. You will set up structures and you will manufacture uh, routines and traditions and systems that people can never live up to. And, and your, uh, the, the worst day of their week will be coming to church because they'll just be constantly reminded of how failed they are and how pathetic they are and how disappointed God is with them. And that is not the gospel. And um, they, they will dread coming to church. They will dread you. They will dread the structure you have constructed. But they will try, try, try until they f- finally hit a wall of exasperation. They will either fall away Walk away, go to another church, uh, resent you, or stay and stew in resentment. Um, 
it will just be a life-draining oppression. It will be an oppressive existence. If you are there, that's a bad place to be. As a leader, that's a very bad place to be. You're not flourishing as a Christian. You're not flourishing in your relationship with the Lord and in, and in who you are in Christ and the gospel. And you, are, you will duplicate that into culture and your church will not flourish. And I'm not talking about numbers right now. I'm just talking about culture. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing. That in you, call it legalism, call it legalistic, call it what you will. It's just unhealthy. It's just not biblical. And that becomes the air you breathe into your environment, and that becomes the, the air that your church is made up of. And when a lost person comes into that, it's just weird to them. It's as weird as if you were all speaking in tongues. It's, it's dark, it's heavy, it's ostracizing. It's, it's um, almost Catholic in its feel, okay? Um, so that creates a culture. And it, it's very difficult for anybody to grow healthy in that unhealthy culture. Even if you are preaching the Bible, but if you're pushing it through that grid, you're, you're perverting it. You're distorting it. Um, the metaphor or the, or the word picture I like to use is, and I may have used this on a podcast. I can't remember. I'd like to do a whole podcast on it, but think of a machine shop versus a greenhouse. How do you think of your church? Okay. Have you ever been into a machine shop? I, w- I actually wanted to bring like a, a, a fork and a plant. Okay. So in your mind, just imagine there's a fork here and a plant here. All right. I, I got to tour a machine shop years ago with a friend of mine that worked there. I've actually been in a couple of them. One, one down the road here from a guy that works in our church. Machine shop, you walk into it. It's a very uh, industrial environment. It's very, you know, concrete, metal. It's, it's warehouse feeling. Um, it's, it's a bloody environment if you were raw metal. <laughs> I mean, you would just consider this a slaughterhouse. <laughs> you know, it's shaving and trimming and cutting and melting. And it is, it's taking raw material and forging it and forcing it and frame, pushing it through machines and processes that, that, that literally just cuts it to pieces and shapes it. And at the end, you've got this product that's a metal product, a fork or a bolt or a piece, you know, screwdriver or whatever. And, and they are identical. When you see the final products laid out across a table or on display, I mean, they're identical, every one of them to the finest nth of a degree, they are just identical, okay? And the goal of a machinist is to take that blueprint and force that raw metal and material through the process to get it to all look the same, exactly the same, precision duplication, okay? And I've experienced and seen over 42 years of Christianity in my life, and I'm 49, I got saved when I was seven, um, a lot of machine shop church models. It's like, okay, now that you trusted Christ, we have got to forge you through these systems so that you come out looking and talking like all the rest of the products on the shelf. Um, The problem is that that eats up and devours people 
very few people can sustain and survive that kind of environment. And, and those that survive it generally don't do so joyfully because it's a mechanized uh, environment. It's an industrialized environment. It's a, it, we are forcing an outcome that actually may not be all a bad outcome. It's just we're, we're contriving it, we're forcing it, we're, we are manufacturing it instead of letting it grow organically. And the Christian life, if anything, it is an organic life. Um, it is not a mechanized. The Pharisees wanted to machine shop it, okay? Um, the, 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 the journey with Jesus is much more organic than that. And yet we're tempted. I'm tempted as a leader to go, okay, here's the, here's the product I'm, I'm aiming at. How do I get everybody to be that, Right? Some of you have asked even this last 24 hours, how do I get my church to give? How do I get my church to grow? How do I get my church to um, accept change? And I want to propose to you for a minute that you're asking, in some ways, you're asking the wrong questions. And when I say we want to challenge your thinking, that's what I want to challenge right now, okay? Because here's my proposition. If you will cultivate a gospel culture, you won't even have to ask those questions. If you will cultivate a gospel culture, those things will materialize. And you'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa. In other words, okay, so we're going to flow into what changed at Emmanuel here in a few minutes. And be taking notes. You guys be taking notes because I want to hear your, your comments on this. When I start with the question, how do I get people to give? How do I get people to witness? How do I get? I'm starting at the wrong point. God's spirit is far more capable of getting his followers to do those things. He doesn't need me to get them to do those things. Okay? He has already ordained Biblical, supernatural processes by his spirit that cause those things to happen. So my job is not to get those things to happen. My job is to cultivate an environment where they can happen. That's what a greenhouse environment is. My brother's a missionary in Guatemala. He has a school, uh, it's a miracle work in, in, a, in a mountain region, in an impoverished village of Guatemala. They've built, they've done uh, over a million dollars worth of, of building, paid for it in cash. He went, he didn't even go on deputation, he just moved to Guatemala. It's a, it's a modern day uh, Dave, uh, uh, George Mueller story. He has these greenhouses out behind their school and he's, he's educating two, 300 kids every day uh, and leading them to Christ and giving them the gospel. And, and it's, it's a miracle thing. But there's these greenhouses, and I, he, he walked me through them a couple years ago when I was down there. A greenhouse is, is, is set up totally different than a machine shop. Um, the, the focus of a farmer is you, you're cultivating organic environmental health so that natural processes can happen, right? Okay. Uh, so I planted some peach trees, or a friend of mine planted some peach trees up in our backyard three or four years ago. 
I'm not trying to figure out how to get those trees to produce peaches. I never asked that question one time. How do I get peaches from this tree? No, I know peaches will naturally happen. What I've been asking is, how do I take care of that tree? How do I care for that tree so that it can do what it's designed to do? Okay, so as a leader, this is the question you should be asking. How do I care for God's people? How do I care for this church so that the environment can become healthy so that God can do what God does? So that he can, so that his, it's the fruit of the spirit. It's not the fruit of our processes. It's not the fruit of our methods. It's not the fruit of our alma maters. It's not the fruit of our group or denomination. It's the fruit of the spirit. Um, some, some people in their unique group are led to believe that there is no other place where Christianity is thriving. There is no other place where people are doing the work of the gospel. There is no other group or, or world where, and, and when you come out of that bubble and you look around, you're like, wow, God's doing a whole lot of great things all over the world through lots of different people and lots of different groups. Oh my goodness. I was misled. <laughs> or maybe played was a better word, you know. In other words, in other words, I was, you know, I was steered towards a constituency, and 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 good and good uh, leaders and influences say, hey, it's not about a constituency; it's about a much bigger cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, a greenhouse. What do you do? You just know you need sunlight. You need water. You need um, nutrients, soil. You need protection from destructive elements. So, so that's what a greenhouse is designed to do. It's designed to protect from wind and pests, things that would damage the plants. It's, so it is protective, uh, but it is also cultivating and uh, in an organic way, you're, you're infusing nutrition, you're infusing light, you're infusing water at the right amounts in the right way, in a way that is sustainable. Too much of any of that, you'll kill the same plants that otherwise would flourish. You know, So uh, there, there's a balanced recipe there that you're cultivating. And, and then you just kind of wait. And you keep cultivating health, and you keep cultivating health. And I, I've tried to become a student of healthy churches across movements, across denominations, and they exist in lots of Bible-believing contexts. Healthy churches, and the qualities are the same. In, in, in every different group, the healthy churches stand out as having the same qualities. The culture is cultivated. It's not manufactured. And in those greenhouse environments, the plants all look different. And they're not comparing one to another, and they're not in competition. I've got four, five peach trees back there, and they don't talk to each other about who grew the most peaches. They're not in, there's no contest between them. I didn't go out and have a contest for which tree can grow the most peaches, okay? It's just, let's cultivate each tree, let each tree be its own thing, do its own thing. Um, if I have a greenhouse and I got a plant with 10 tomatoes and a plant with five tomatoes, the question, I'm not asking, why'd you only grow five? 
I'm just saying, hey, are they, are they both healthy? So I approach entirely Emmanuel Baptist Church with a greenhouse mentality. Uh, I'm, I'm cultivating health in an environment. I'm wanting God to do and the gospel to do what it does naturally. I'm trying to be protective, false doctrine, contention, uh, pride, division in the church. This is the, the, this is the destructive elements. Uh, diversions, you know, when somebody comes and says, uh, okay, I had a lady that visited not long ago, and she, her and her husband stopped me in the lobby. They wanted to talk about basically God's, uh, her posture was God heals everybody. You know, we got that, down that road. And, and I just said, you know what? This isn't the church for you. And with all respect, you're a, you're a God-loving person. We believe the same gospel. We have the same Savior. But if that's your thing, uh, there's other churches around that actually do believe that. But we, that's not the, you know, I wouldn't let you come into this church with that message. Um, so, yeah, there's a protection theologically to purity. Um, but then there's a back away, hands off, Lord, do what you do. I'll give you a quick illustration. A guy in our church named David, I used him as an illustration in church not long ago. David got saved. There's a picture like right up in this hallway here of him getting baptized. When David came in, he tattooed completely, ears pierced, long duck dynasty beard. Um, you just, he looked like a terrorist. I actually had people ask, like one, one person asked, is that guy a terrorist? I'm like, no. No, he's actually a really nice guy. Um, and uh, he owned a tattoo parlor about a, two miles from here. Okay, He got saved. He came in uh, and began to grow. And my machine shop thinking immediately starts going, how do I shave off all these rough edges? How, how do I get David to look like a Christian, to be like a Christian, you know. And God's Spirit convicted me and said, that's not your job. And, and maybe even a person or two in the church or on the staff might have even said, you know, what, how do we get David? And I'd be like, hands off David, okay? He belongs to God. And every time I was about to, like, and feeling this pressure, like the story you told about the, the couple yesterday, kind of pre- like you leave second guessing, am I not hard enough? Should I be setting up bigger fences and higher walls? And uh, should I be meaner? You know, um, there was this, every time I was about to say something, the Spirit of God just said, wait. Now you'd say, well, you're, no, you wouldn't. But some people say, well, Carrie, you're a compromiser. You should have just confronted that. I would have crushed David, lost him entirely, and totally prevented the Spirit of God from doing the work he wants to do in David's life. Um, so what one man would call compromise, I would just call cultivation. Okay? And God's Spirit just said, wait, just wait. So uh, periodically on Wednesdays, David would sit right over here on Wednesday Bible study, and, I, and when we'd go to prayer time, I would go down and grab David and pray. And two, three months after he got saved and he was growing, or maybe after he got baptized, he said to me one day, hey, pastor, pray for me. I said, sure, how can I pray for you? He said, well, man, ever since I've become a Christian and got baptized and been growing, I said, he said, I've been sharing the gospel with everybody at my tattoo parlor. 
wait a minute, wait a minute, is that even okay? <laughs> we had a, we had a, a lady, that she sings in the choir, she got saved, she was, oh my goodness, she was Jewish, lesbian, bartender at a strip club, and she came for six weeks in a row. She, she, she came because somebody, uh, one of our staff members invited her at Chili's to church, single mom. She came because she had just watched Home Alone, and there's a scene where Macaulay, what's this, this kid's name? You know what I'm talking about. Sitting in a church, and it gave her this Catholic church, yeah. She, she watched the movie and was like, oh, it's coming into Thanksgiving, Christmas time. I really want to go to church. She just had this warm and fuzzy, weird feeling. The next day, somebody invites her to Emmanuel. She's like, oh, I was thinking about going to church. She's sure nobody's going to talk to her. Nobody's going to accept her. She's never going to come back, but she wanted to come. She came on a Wednesday night, and people started hugging her and loving her and blessing her. And, and uh, the, guy, the, the guy and his wife that invited her, he came to me, and he goes, Pastor, this, this, the, the lady back here, Sarah, he goes... We invited her. I think she works at a strip club. <laughs> like, like, like it's criminal to say that. And I'm like, it's okay. You know, that's why we're here, to reach lost people, you know. And uh, she was so loved that service. She came back Sunday. She came back Sunday night. She came back Wednesday. She came back Sunday. She came back Sunday night. And she was starting to understand the gospel. And I, and I got a Facebook message from her one night. And, it, and it, was, it was the week before Thanksgiving, and she said, I want to believe in Jesus. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah, I think I can help. Okay, so I wrote her, and I said, yes, tomorrow's our Thanksgiving lunch for our staff. Why don't you come to the lunch and have lunch with us, and then either I or, or my wife or both of us or one of, one of our team will sit down with you and help you understand and answer your questions. And so she came to the lunch, um, she walked in, the, she was uh, kind of felt out of place, our school and church, what small staff we had was gathered over here, and I said, hey, by the way, everybody, this is Sarah, and, and I said, she hasn't trusted Christ yet, but she's asking questions, and she wants to know more about the gospel, and so I invited her to lunch today, and we're going to talk to her afterwards, so just welcome Sarah, you know, and everybody, I had actually some of our older uh, staff members that had been on staff for years at the school came up and said, it was so weird for us to hear you say out loud in front of her, she hasn't trusted Christ yet, but she's thinking about it. That was such a culture-shaking, like, breakthrough moment for them, you know, and I'm like, well, that, what's wrong with that, you know? Uh, I'm, I met with a realtor yesterday upstairs, came by the church. I got story after story I want to share with you. And shared the gospel with him again. It was my sixth time to share the gospel with him. His name is Barry. Uh, he's worked with multiple of our staff. We've all shared the gospel with him. He came by, went through it again with him. He's read done. He said, I need another copy of it. I said, why? He said, because mine's all marked up and I want to read, read a fresh copy. He's Jewish. He's read all the Koran. He's got all of this intellect. And, and he's got questions. We've had breakfast together. We're cultivating a relationship with him. He comes to church once a month, twice, you know, something like that. Loves it. Isn't saved. Um, and I said, Barry, all I can tell you is Jesus is real. He loves you. He's ready to come into your life whenever you're ready to ask him. And it's a game changer. Changes everything. He goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. You know, I said, well, you, we still love you, <laughs> you know. So that day, Derek and, and, and Darcy, they took Sarah up after lunch. 
they had to go all the way through Genesis to Revelation. You know, they had to tell her everything. She never even heard of Adam and Eve. And Sarah came to a moment where she said, wait a minute. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I am? Do you know where I work? In spite of all that, you're saying Jesus wants me. Jesus loves me. And Derek said, yes. And what did she do, Derek? She just broke and just wept. Um, come back, back to, to, well, Sarah's story is a month later, she came up to me and she said, I quit my job. No one told her to quit her job. God's spirit did. She said, pray that I can find a job. I said, Sarah, you will find a job. She now works at a preschool. (laughs) Considerably different environment. (laughs) She wants a husband. She sings in the choir. She's read everything John MacArthur and Tim Keller ever wrote. (laughs) So much so that I started saying, Sarah, you're going to become a Calvinist. (laughs) I have to offset some of this influence. (laughs) I said, I'm glad you're reading these guys, but let me offset it, you know. I said, don't become a Calvinist. Uh, I said, you realize. I said, Sarah, at one point, I said, you realize. She was reading a lot of R.C. Sproul. I said, you realize that some of those guys are so extreme, they wouldn't have even tried to reach you, you know? So be careful, be careful that you don't, you don't lose your heart for evangelism as you're reading these guys. But she's just thirsty, just thirsty to, to understand Christianity. So she, uh, she's, she's growing and uh, growing in grace. It's been a long, slow, patient cultivation. David was witnessing to everybody at his tattoo shop. He said, I put my picture of my baptism, I framed it and put it up on the wall. So imagine a guy, you know, picture of his baptism. That is so counter to everything I've ever been taught in my Christian journey. Um, and, and, uh, And then about a year and a half or two into it, same thing happened one day, he said to me, um, pray for me. I said, about what? He said, I got to get out of this business. I said, David, I knew God would tell you that eventually. And I just, I didn't want to break you and enforce it on you. I wanted God's spirit to do that work in you. I'm just trying to help you understand that if you will cultivate the culture with the word of God, that's the nutrients. Um, and, and with a shepherding heart of patience, if you'll give the Holy Spirit time and the Word of God time, maturity materializes. Fruit is, it comes, okay? Fruit happens. Uh, I've taken uh, too much time on, on this, but I, wanna, I want to segue quickly into um, what happened culturally at Emmanuel, okay? Um, and this flows from, some of you have read this blog post, What Changed at Emmanuel Over Six Years. That came out of a conversation. Uh, really, at our five-year mark, we were talking with some of our church family members, and uh, a man that's not able to be here today had emailed me and said, what would you say are the defining changes, quote-unquote, at Emmanuel? And I tell you all this to, to help you understand when we say change, what are we talking about? It's not simply form or paint. 
or carpet. And it's not simply methods. Like, like what tactics did you employ? Like what programs did you start? That's the wrong question. Okay. The changes we're talking about are cultural changes, internal cultural changes. And they're the most biblical, healthy kind of cultural changes. Um, but with a group of people in a conversation looking back on this journey that I could have never strategized, this is what we in the rearview mirror saw God shape in terms of values that, that led to healthy culture, okay? I'll read them, profile them quickly, and then we'll bring the guys up and we'll, we'll unpack, talk about them, and go back and forth, okay? So I think I've, I've established that Jesus led the change organically, I would establish, too, that the changes led to stronger doctrine, not weaker doctrine. Stronger theology, not weaker theology. Clearer theology, okay? I would say that the cha- anything that was a, a change drew us back to gospel mission when it actually the church was far from gospel mission, okay? So we're talking about not just change, experimental change. We're not, we're not talking about playing with God's church and just you know, programmatic brand changes, marketing changes, you know, trying to find trendy hip little things to get the church to grow. That is not, I don't, I view that as experimentation that is actually dangerous and not something I want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and answer for. Okay. I don't want to experiment with Jesus bride. I want to get back to uh, health, biblical gospel culture, biblical theology. Um, we use the words a lot, gospel-centered, grace-driven, love-motivated ministry, and I think I got that from you, Brian. Is that, are those close to your terms? Say, what do you say? Uh, we're, we're driven, I love all that. I can't even repeat it, but it was all great stuff. <laughs> Write it down for us. Um, we're driven, uh, we're, we're driven gospel-centered, gospel-centered grace-anchored, grace spirit-filled. Such, such, such great words, Okay. Um, we've been tried to laser focus on preaching the gospel. How do we as a church preach the gospel? How do we publish the gospel in a secular region, in an academic region? People up here worship a God of education. Uh, master's degrees, master's degrees. I mean, you know, UConn, Harvard, uh, MIT, uh, you, just, you can begin to name the edu- it's This is the academic world between Boston and New York, okay? We've sought as a church family to be unified by what Philippians 1.5 calls the fellowship in the gospel, okay? And the changes have been delightful, and they've, they've migrated us from a machine shop mentality to a greenhouse mentality, okay? So... Number one, cha- number one change or cultural shaping was make Jesus and the gospel the top priority. And it's easy to say that, but it's harder to do it. The gospel has taken center stage in my life. That's why I say, be who you are shapes what the church becomes, okay? You can't force or contrive this. If God's not shaping you by the gospel, then it, it's going to be pretense at best, it's just going to be you, 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 like a sticker, you know, like like adhesive, like wallpaper. The wall is going to be made out of the same thing. You're just plastering a new look on it. Um, 
But if it's a heart gospel reshaping, then it's going to overflow in your preaching and in the way you um, journey with Christ and the way others uh, try to emulate that journey. Um, We have framed all of our theology and practice around the idea that the message of the Bible from start to finish points to the gospel. Okay. Um, and we've tried to be immersive about it. We've, we've anchored to the idea that the gospel saves us and the gospel shapes us. Okay. And if you want to delve in, if that's new to you, and I, I know there's a handful of guys here that are like, this is a new way of thinking for me. There's lots of great books and resources on it that we can, uh, you know, direct you into. Um, Number two, we have desired to lead the church in authentic worship. Authentic worship. I've learned more personally about worship in the last six years than any other other part of my Christian journey. Um, Even though I was a worship leader for a while, long while, um, I heard Stephen Chappell say one day, if you want your church to serve Jesus, lead them to worship him. And I, I've got to be honest with you, when he said it, I didn't understand it. You know? And now, but now, it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> worship is love. And when you love Jesus, if you love your, life, your wife, what do you do? You don't, you don't do because you have to. You, if you love her, you just do. And that comes out of you, Okay? If, if you can lead people to love Jesus, you won't have to worry about getting them to do anything. I'm just, I'm just telling you, they will want to. They will want to give. They will want to go. They will want to grow. They will want to be faithful. They will want, want, want to. And it's such an awesome thing. The pressure's off. Pressure's off of you. All those, how do I get them to? How do I, it all goes away. I don't have to get them to give. I was so stressed out when I first got here. Uh, Kurt and Scott were like psychotherapists to me. Um, and, and they both said these, you know, so many good things to me in those years. I remember Scott one time saying, Carrie, it's going to be okay. Financially, I was just so stressed out about the money. Emmanuel was losing $20,000 a month when I got here. And I took a $30,000 pay cut to come here. So do the math. How am I going to make this work? I was panicked. If you had called me and said, would you come and do a funeral for my cat? I would have. I hate cats. I would have just hoped there was a $100 love offering at the end of that funeral. Because <laughs> I had groceries to buy. And, and man, we were falling behind on bills. I just did not know how this was going to work. And Scott said something to me one day. He said, this is as tight as you'll ever be. Speaking about the church, the ministry. And I'm like, easy for you to say. You've, you've built $100 million of buildings in cash. And you get, you know, I mean... <laughs> You jerk, you know. <laughs> but what was he? What he was saying was filled with so much wisdom. He said, "No, he, he went to a church of 125 people that was also bleeding terribly financially and miserable, and he had been down this road of seeing God organically raise up providential provision." Because I'm like a terrible fundraiser, and if you ask me how do you get people to give, I'm like, I don't know. Give them the Bible, tell them what Jesus did for them, and. Have a special offering and say, hey, don't do anything out of obligation or pressure. I'm real low key, you know. Just do whatever you can do out of love and joyful. What do you, basically, 
Not grudgingly, nor of the necessity of God, love for the cheerful giver. People don't become cheerful givers by you saying, be cheerful. That doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> you point them to Jesus. They see the cross. Yeah, you can quote me on that. It, it, their heart explodes and, oh my goodness, look what God's done for me. How do I say thank you? And you go, like, one way you can say thank you is you can give to his church and his work. Put, put his kingdom first. Oh, okay. And then they just want to. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So if you lead, if you lead them to worship, you, you, you will uh, see tremendous, tremendous organic health in, in terms of, of their spiritual growth. This is what we call a love-driven Christianity. And I could say a lot more about music there and different things, but uh, this is not about trends or traditions. It's not about even musical style. It's not about um, uh, trends or, or being hip or cool. Uh, I don't really care to be entertainment driven. Uh, I definitely don't want to be archaic, you know, uh, simply outdated. I want Christians and lost people to come into this environment and sense the presence of God. And that's what I most hear from them. Um, lost people say, this is the most unique environment I've ever been in. They don't know how to quantify it. And, and then Christians say, boy, when we walked into this place, we could sense the presence of God. Uh, and and that becomes inarguable. So sincere worship is attractive to believers and unbelievers, both. And in that, your morning service becomes your most powerful evangelistic tool. This could speak to another part of the conversation. Is the church for Christians or lost people? You know, there's a strong vein of teaching out there that says, no, the church is for Christians. You go out and win them, and then once they're saved, they, they come into the church. And then there's another pendulum swing that, no, the church is for the lost, and, and, and we have to be, become whatever we have to become to get lost people in. And I say there's error on both ends of that spectrum. Uh, the church is for both. And when you, you, when, you bring, when you combine the declaration of the gospel with a display of the gospel, you make the gospel really desirable. Your words, your preaching makes it understandable. The culture of your church makes it desirable. See, when you're leading someone to Christ, and I'm for it. We've led people to Christ at Starbucks even, believe it or not. Um, Panera Bread, Pastor Derek, myself, we've had people bow their heads in Panera Bread, you know, and, and trust Christ. People can get saved outside of the church. That's good and fine. At their doors, I've led people to Christ, wherever they're ready to hear the gospel, okay? But the reason I say the morning service is the most compelling and powerful evangelistic tool is because it's in that environment where they can hear it, see it, feel it, breathe it, experience it. It's like I hear about this love and now I see this love. And it becomes 3D color instead of just four points on the back of a track, which is good. It becomes an, an immersive, experiential wow. And in New England, that is a foreign experience. Everybody that thinks they understand what Christianity is when they walk into Emmanuel, they find out it's, that there's another kind of Christianity other than Catholicism because everything's up here is either secular or Catholic. So when they're coming on their way here, as they're driving in, they're thinking candles and statues. And they walk in, and there's coffee and donuts and music and happiness. 
And they're already going, this is church? And then we actually enjoy it and celebrate and encourage, and, and then we preach the gospel, and then it all makes sense to them. Okay, and God's spirit pulls that all together. So we, we cultivated a, a, an authentic kind of worship. Number three, we cultivated a warm culture for unbelievers and guests. And I want you to write down the word environment. And we can talk more about this too. There's, there's a lot here. Emmanuel was a bit of a museum, maybe even a mausoleum culture. Museum, meaning there were displays, archaic kind of displays. There was a financial display of all the bad news financially. All the reports were posted up on a board. There was a, uh, there was a military display. There was a display of, of people that were in the ministry out of Emmanuel. And I loved all these things. But when you, when, you, when you walked in, it just felt 30 years old, 40 years old. The environment felt and smelled 30, 40 years old. And that was concerning to me because um, new people coming in, environmentally, it just was not the kind of environment you want to go back to. It's like, you know, you, you walk into a dentist office and you smell that smell and you hear that drill. And that's not an environment you want to be in. When, when you call your wife, let's go on a date. Where do you want to go? Dentist office. Let's go. I can't wait to smell that smell again, okay? The flickering, you know, fluorescent lights and the stained ceiling tiles. I can't wait to go back to that environment, okay? The moldy carpet, the, the cracked walls, you know. Some of you need to go back to your church, walk in and get that first eye and look around and go, what environment is this? And, and immediately you'll go, no wonder no lost people want to come here. No wonder visitors aren't coming back. This is a putrid environment. And that's really practical, maybe even pragmatic. But when you walk into a room and it's bright and there's music playing and there's coffee smell, the environment just welcomes you. You know, you walk into an environment that's institutional, gray, concrete, no music, no coffee, light bulbs burnt out, ceiling tiles falling down. That's not a welcoming environment. It's kind of like, who are you visiting in prison today? Okay. And honestly, when you came into this lobby down here, which is kind of our children's space, it was, it was gray. Everything was gray and metal. And we've come back in and painted everything bright and all that. But it was, it was black and gray with the color schemes. And it really did feel, see, I want to get rid of that window with the, the windows with the wiring in it. Why? Because that's what they use at prison. You know, so that's an environmental thing to me that bothers me. It feels institutional. It doesn't feel familial. It doesn't feel warm. Um, we serve coffee. Some people at first were like, oh, it's the church. They're drinking coffee in the church. And I'm like, yeah, so? Who cares? They're going to spill it on the carpet. The carpet's ugly anyway. It doesn't matter. Spill it. You know, we replace the carpet. People say, we're well, still going to serve coffee. Absolutely. What if they spill it on the carpet? Praise God. We got lost people to spill coffee on our carpet. We'll take another love offering and replace it. You know, uh, anyway, warm culture for unbelievers, number four. This is fun. Provide. I call this, by the way, a come and see culture. And don't start with me that there's a dichotomy between go and tell and come and see. Go tell them to come and see. Think, guys, okay, think. Yeah, go tell them the gospel. Tell them to come and see, too. 
Uh, but not everybody in your church is, is going to have the courage or the intellectual capacity to say, to, 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 to immediately go share their faith. Let me tell you what Sarah did. Right after she got saved, we had this campaign called <laughs> You Are Loved. Remember this, Derek? You Are Loved. It was random acts of kindness all through the Christmas. She got saved right, right at Thanksgiving. So the next month, we're handing out these cards, You Are Loved, You Are Loved. And we just said, do random acts of kindness. Pay for the coffee for the guy behind you in the car and leave a card, You Are Loved. You know, give, give cookies to your neighbors. Here's what Sarah did. She went to the gas station and bought 10 lottery tickets. She paper-clipped You Are Loved card to the lottery tickets, stuck the lottery ticket on the gas pumps at the gas station, posted a picture of it on Facebook. And you know what I did? I celebrated. Awesome. I went and bought lottery ticket. No, just <laughs> That is so cool. Uh, I would have never thought to tell her to go buy lottery tickets. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so, number four is provide gospel-shaped team leadership. We talked a little bit about that last night. Um, but I believe the Bible very clearly teaches against fear-driven, domineering, passive-aggressive authoritarianism. I also believe that, in, by the way, not just one movement, not just one denomination. Do your homework. Every denominational group has strains of this and strains of other forms of politics. So if you think, I'm going to leave this group and go to this group, <laughs> you're just going to find out they have issues too. <laughs> so look at it theologically, not just socially, okay? Um, but the the fear-driven, domineering, passive-aggressive, authoritarian leadership model, 1 Peter 5, neither lording over God's heritage, okay? Um, it's, it's that power mentality, that, that overemphasis, that, that over-magnification of pastoral authority that makes the, pa it puts the weight on the pastor of being a guru. Like I have some special, mystical understanding of the will of God for you. Um, I'm great with the multitude of counselors. That's safe, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm great with uh, a pastor being one of those counselors, okay? But look, guys, I, I'm, neither, none of us are omniscient. None of us are mystically... Uh, it, it is... It, it is in essence, antinomianism. It's that establishing of a hierarchy, a bishopric above the people to lord over them. And it's really not biblical. I'm, I'm fine with senior leadership. I'm a senior leader here, but boy, I want to be surrounded by a team of godly men and I want it to be team-oriented and I want us to uh, converge with affirming spirit-led decisions. Yes, we believe this is God's will for our church. To, to, to complement that, this church was a wounded church. If you're leading a wounded church, you're leading a skeptical church. So if you just try to charge in with your agenda, they're going to be like, who do you think you are? But if you lead with a cultivating heart and a loving heart, they will follow. 
Um, and then personally, the reason I can't do that kind of leadership is it just strangles me. It puts the burden too heavily on me. And I'm not designed for that. I will self-destruct if it's all on my shoulders. If I've got to know the will of God for every church member and I've got to come up with answers for the church, I'm just not the smartest guy in the church. So if I've got to know it all and be it all, I'm out. I'll go sell cars, okay? I can't do that. I need a team. Number five, uh, we chose to follow Jesus regardless of the cost. Again, these are not my things. These are the things we came up with as a group. In other words, uh, Jesus isn't fearful of your skeptics or scorners. So why should you be? We really decided we're not going to follow a crowd or a movement or an association. We're not trying to please outside spectators or examiners. Had a guy call me for some advice not long ago, and he he said, could I, could I come up and meet with you? I said, sure, I'd be happy to. He goes, uh, I knew where he was from. And I said, is it going to cost you? Are you going to get in trouble? Am I going to reject you? He said, yeah, you're right. It might. He said, I don't hear a lot of good things about you. I hear a lot of negative. <laughs> I'm like, why did you tell me that? I don't need to know that, you know. It's okay. It's okay. Scott tells me it's okay. <laughs> Scott, I told Scott this morning, you've given me a lot of liberty that you don't yourself have yet. So I'm going to try to minister to him as a therapist. Uh, bottom line is joyful new believers always overpower. They speak louder to my heart than my outside critics. But there is a relational cost to leading your church to a healthy culture. Um, you, you will find out some relationships weren't what you thought they were. You will find out that you were simply useful to somebody else. And if you're no longer useful to them, they no longer have a use for you, okay? Um, there will be a, a, a sifting of your true friendships. And that's what I pray this meeting will be for you, is an infusion of, of true friends into your life. Um really to preserve my own emotional health, I've just had to release those things to God. I don't like to use names, but David Cloud has repeatedly written malicious lies about me. He's never one time tried to call me and contact me. I don't wish him any ill will. I've never engaged him one time. Um, I, don't even, <laughs> I don't even know he does it, except for like my first Sunday here, somebody walked over, there was a display table of... Per periodicals and stuff, and Clouds Magazine was on, on the table. <laughs> and uh, somebody picked it up and opened it up, and there's my picture. <laughs> and they handed it to me, and I went, wow. And I looked over at Bill. You remember this, Bill? I handed him, I said, you think maybe we should throw this away? And I opened it and showed him the picture. You know? I don't, you know, I, I don't understand all that, but I can't be caught up in that emotionally. There's too many good things happening around me. So build that identity on, on the freedom of your obedience to Jesus, okay? If at the end of the day, God's leading you and your church and there's leaders in your immediate world that are saying, yes, this is how God's leading us, then go. I want to tell you one more story and then I'll ask Kurt and Scott to come. We'll kind of unpack this. Um, the, the, the methodological changes have flowed out of the cultural changes, 
And they've kind of materialized in ways that surprised me. So if you said to me, like, well, how did you strategize the turnaround of Emmanuel? It goes real, really simple like this. I woke up every morning depressed, went to Dunkin' Donuts and sat by myself for two hours moping. Then I spent the next two hours begging God to do something. And then I landed on, I can only do three things. Um, feed, fellowship, and follow up. I will feed the flock, I will fellowship with my flock, and I will follow up on anybody that God gives me to follow up on. And I had to kind of mind block out the million dollars worth of renovation work that needs to happen and all the millions of things that I wanted to see happen and I had to zero in on, on what I could do and pray, pray, pray to God that next Monday we would be able to make payroll. This is, it was desperation, okay? There was not a lot of strategy. Um, but early on, uh, so the only way I've ever seen to lead, to bring people to Christ in a church service is you preach the gospel, you stand, you sing an invitation, they walk the aisle. Right. You team them with a counselor, you take them to the back hallway, you spend 30 minutes with them, lead them to pray, they walk out, and they're saved. That's the model. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it's wicked or bad. It's wherever it works, it works. Okay. But I didn't know any counselors, and, and the back rooms were filled with junk, and there, there were not really any resources. How do I get people saved? And then it's like God's Spirit said, well, how do we do it in the book of Acts? Oh, wait, Peter stood up and preached and said, believe, and 3,000 people believed. So in my mind, in my mind I guess in, in the background of my mind, there was always like counselors and rooms. <laughs> And brochures and, you know, forums and decision cards. But wait, it's not there. You know, they preach the gospel, 3,000 people believe. So all I knew to do was stand up, preach the gospel, heads bowed, eyes closed. Um, if you'd like to believe in Jesus, why don't you pray right where you are? And here's what to pray. Here's how to pray. If you just prayed, would you raise your hand? And the first Sunday I did that, like four hands went up. And then I'm like, the skeptics of my past are like, well, are they really saved? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is that even my job? Well, then they came up afterwards and introduced themselves, and a couple of them were crying and wanted to, and they were really happy that they got saved. I'm like, well, God's Spirit said, yeah, they're really saved, Carrie. And I did that again and again and again. And every week I started seeing people saved, and I was like, oh, is this okay? Came into a deacon's meeting one night. Three months in, we'd seen probably 25 or 30 people saved. I said, guys, is there anything I'm doing that worries you or alarms you? I was fully prepared for them to say, we're really not comfortable with how you're doing the invitation. Who's counseling these people? Who's vetting this? You know, like, like, like the Holy Spirit can't. We need to vet this. You know. And, and one of the men in the room said, well, I know one thing you shouldn't change. And I said, Really? What should I not change? This was Steve Methvin. Steve said, don't change how you're doing the invitation. Amen. I was like, God's spirit just said, see, you have my permission to be who you are, where you are, and let my spirit do the work. And I said, Steve, tell me why you say that. He said, I've been a member of this church for three years. I've never seen people saved like we're seeing people saved. He said, so pastor, don't change the invitation. And so we haven't. We've actually just tried to ramp that, that approach up, and it, it works very well. That is a method change. 
that I was not comfortable with. But over time, God untangled my tied-up conscience and set me free back to a Book of Acts model. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about, okay? So I took way too much time. Kurt and Scott, you come. And uh, Scott, you start. Um, we'll hear some, some from these guys, then we'll get out to you guys, and we'll hopefully enjoy this.